Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Hauck. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published across the U.S. and Canada, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. This episode is brought to you by Volpe Foods, a family company celebrating 120 years of crafting charcuterie from the freshest ingredients and packing their meats in better-for-the-earth materials. Find Volpe salami, prosciutto, and pancetta at your local grocery store. Today, we'll be speaking with Emily Payne. Emily is a writer covering the intersection of food, agriculture, climate, and health. She focuses on regenerative food systems and profiles farmers in transition to more sustainable practices. She's served as editor of the global sustainable food nonprofit Food Tank since 2015 and worked with a series of ag tech startup companies focusing on how to build technologies that better meet farmers' needs. Her work has appeared in Food Tank, Edible Communities, The Counter, Ag Funder News, Ag Daily, Mad Agriculture, Thomson Reuters Foundation, the New York City Food Policy Center, and more. She's based in Denver, Colorado. Emily contributed to the fifth in a series of pieces produced by Edible Communities for publication in Edible magazines across the U.S. and Canada and at ediblecommunities.com. The piece is titled, Is Plastic Waste the Cost of Eating? And it was written in collaboration with Food Tank's founder, Danielle Nirenberg. The piece takes a dive into the piles of what we as consumers do and don't know about the materials, often single-use materials, that wrap and contain almost all the food we eat. Today, we'll take a look from the perspective of packaging at where the buck stops when it comes to the challenges of being a human who eats on a planet in environmental crisis. Emily Payne, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to writing about food and climate? Absolutely. So I think it it really comes down to me being a big nerd. But <laughs> coming out of college, I came across some of Michael Pollan's work. Specifically, I remember reading his book, In Defense of Food, The Omnivore's Dilemma, really not being able to put it down. Dan Barber's The Third Plate as well was hugely influential. And I was totally hooked. So at the time I was writing more about the human health side, but the more I learned about the how interconnected our soils and food production methods are with both human and environmental health and the climate, I moved my career more and more in that direction. And I found Food Tank pretty early on, I think probably about seven years ago at this point. And I started as their copy editor at the time. So I got to edit and help post their daily content, which was sort of a, it's like a fun crash course in sustainable food systems. And but since then I've worked with them in, in varying capacities and I've learned so, so much from our president, Danny Nirenberg, who I know you had on the show recently. And it's been a complete honor to work so closely with them. I find the nuances and complexities in this field are endless and it's, it's very rewarding to just be able to continually learn Recently, I've been focusing a lot more on regenerative food systems and actually livestock management. Even though I'm a vegetarian myself, it's very, very, very interesting. I've been able to talk with some incredible farmers and producers. So it's very fun work. I, I feel very lucky to be able to do it. That's awesome. I hope we can chat sometime about that overlap of vegetarianism and regenerative agriculture, which seems to often involve animals. <laughs> but today we're here to talk about plastics. <laughs> Another time. <laughs> and and the yeah. <laughs> you open your piece with a statistic that many people might have in 
intuited, even if they don't know the facts. Recycling is not what it appears to be. You mentioned that less than 9% of plastics is recycled. And here's where I, as a consumer, feel a little bit daunted. Do you have any words of encouragement? (laughs) Well, to be honest with you, I felt pretty daunted at many points throughout writing this piece. (laughs) You know, there was that great quote from Diana Cohen of the Plastic Pollution Coalition saying, you know, a ton of our food packaging is made from plastics and most of which is never recycled, but the plastics industry has long worked to convince us otherwise. But that's part of what I loved about, or what I love about writing generally and about writing this piece is that the extent of the issues, but also the extent of the solutions becomes clear throughout writing. So I think the the tides are definitely turning. As with most issues in the food system, it's it's nuanced, it's complex. There are a lot of injustices and issues within the current system, but there are also very exciting solutions. There's so many food system heroes and, and leaders making great strides every day. Um, unfortunately, it's not some of the the big f- flashy headlines that go viral. You know, I'm, I'm sure many listeners heard that story or, or read the headline about how I believe it's the average eater ingests about uh, one credit card every week, um, which is, you know, very scary. And it makes for very uh, good clickbait material for, for readers. But I, I think that, you know, meanwhile, the city of San Francisco now diverts 80% of its, of its waste from landfills. I believe it's the same in Los Angeles and cities across the country. And Driscoll's diverts more than 10, 10 million pounds of plastic packaging from landfills. Uh, I believe actually they just did that in 2021 alone. So not sure on, on this year, other strides being made, but that's just one of the many major food companies that are are definitely trending in the right direction. Um, I think that the the stories of hope and success and sort of the blueprints to to get there are stories that need to be told and shared more uh, to show the consumer and the everyday reader it's not all gloom and doom. And you know that that's Food Tank's mission is to share those stories and hope and success. Yeah, it's interesting to me that the the whole plastics crisis is so recent. I mean, I guess in the last 30 years, the amount of plastic produced has quadrupled. Um, you know, I'm 50 and I remember kind of a quasi pre-plasticky time when most things still like groceries still came in paper <laughs> bags and there just wasn't that much, you know, plastic around. And then, and then recycling became a really big deal and, and consumers kind of like maybe took a little breath and said, okay, recycling, it's here. Okay. We can relax about this, but but that's not what's happening. So now recycling sounds fake and, and, and consumers don't exactly know what to trust in the situation. So I think that I can completely relate to that feeling of, of not knowing what to do next. Um, and we'll talk a little bit. I think I'm going to ask you some questions about the research you did into systems and also um, corporations as we go forward. But, but um, right now, I, I kind of want to think about the large organizations that wield the power in shaping what consumers ultimately have and supporting a cleaner, less plasticky environment. And it seems to come down to those three things, corporations, big institutions like schools and big companies that maybe are, are similarly big users of plastics and municipalities. And you mentioned this a little bit a second ago, but are these types of organizations on the whole heading in the right direction? Yeah, I, I absolutely think you're right. Is that That's where the, the largest impact is to me being right. And I, I do, I do think they're going in the right direction. And I do feel hopeful about it. It's, 
I think it's largely driven by consumer demand, um, like with sustainable food systems and climate issues more generally, people are paying attention more. They're asking more questions. They're looking more closely at these companies and institutions that they're interacting with every day. And they want to make sure that these organizations, um, whether in the public or private sector, are aligning more with their values. Um, I think a, another thing I, I included in the piece is that it was more than 70 brands have committed to uh, a zero waste campaign, which launched just this year in 2022, uh, aiming to improve in- infrastructure and kind of extend the responsibility to the producer uh, in the packaging industry to kind of put the onus on them and to clean up their supply chains, right? So that's not all up to the consumer to navigate this very confusing web of choices and, you know, you can never really make the, the, every single choice you make kind of has an impact. Um, so I, I do see it as a growing trend. And I think the impact is really only just beginning. I mentioned that about Driscoll's waste reduction. I think that statistic, the 10 million reduce was really just from their plastic clamshells alone, where they keep their, their berries. So, you know, imagine extending that to the entire company, to multiple of these food service companies, which is so consolidated these days that if you get just one, two or three of those to actually put forward those commitments and follow through with them, I think the scale of the impact is massive. But I do think that we need to keep the pedal on the gas and make sure these companies are held accountable for what they're actually promising, which is a huge issue in itself. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you have optimism about consumer demand and what the consumer can ask for and maybe see from a corporation. Cause I feel like you know, a consumer never really said, wrap my food in plastic. You know, <laughs> that's, that happened because of capitalism. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good to think that maybe we can reverse the trend. Uh, so recycling problems also extend beyond environmental challenges. As you mentioned in the article, they also affect the communities where the facilities operate. Can you give us a little insight into the social justice issues around recycling, not just domestically, but internationally? Yeah, absolutely. So this this topic could be an entire deep dive in itself. Um, the, the piece briefly touched on it, but I think there's so much more to be said. So I, I'm glad you asked about it. The, the recycling system is deeply connected with environmental injustices. You know, waste processing plants are predominantly built in low-income communities of color and on indigenous lands. They expose these communities to chemical pollutants, which worsen the air quality, but have also been linked to increased rates of asthma, other respiratory diseases, not only from the facilities themselves, but all these diesel trucks coming in and out of the neighborhood, making noise, creating safety issues. Um, Workers are injured regularly on the job in these facilities from unsafe equipment and work environments. Often they're undocumented immigrants doing the work, which uh, makes them especially vulnerable to worker abuses. So the issues are widespread. And then, you know, internationally, I think that's yet another topic, uh, even separate from the U.S. recycling system, which is that, um, you know, often the, I believe it was uh, Megan at Star who I interview, interviewed for the piece, shed light on this, that often these decisions that we make here in the global north are, the impacts of it end up in an in infrastructure that's very different from what we have up here. A lot of these these uh, communities and countries in the global south, they they're still struggling with the ability to have even just landfill facilities. Um, many of them, she said, are, are still 
burning waste every single day because they just can't handle the pure scale of it, um, especially in these smaller countries that just don't even simply have the land, you know, these smaller island island countries. So I think there's is widespread um, and there's a lot of work to be done. I think COVID really shed light on a lot of these worker injustices, but there's a lot of work to be done in that area. And do you have an example uh, perhaps of a municipal best practice or solution where somebody seems to be doing it right as far as the social justice side of this? Like where should a recycling facility end up or how should it support as opposed to, you know, impose challenges on a community? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think as far as examples, I know I mentioned, you know, those stars of San Francisco and LA and, but that's really just in the the statistic, right? The 80% of waste diverted, and that doesn't really show what's under the hood. So that's a great question. I think I, a lot of these, um, I asked, uh, I believe it was Nilda Mesa from Columbia University about this, who had some great in, insight. And, you know, a lot of these facilities have been built on the cheapest land available, which is often the low-income communities of color who also might not be um, politically powerful. So they might not be able to really put up a fight against creating these facilities, which have such negative impact. Um, And I think, and, you know, share that great quote, uh, let's not discount the traditional invisibility and bias against low-income communities of color and indigenous peoples in general. Uh, I think that it comes down to, to voices and kind of sticking up for these communities and preventing this problem from continuing or shedding light on the issues and the impact of recycling more generally, but also at this um, incinerator level at at the facilities themselves. People don't really, you know, we think about diverting waste. We think about reducing plastic production, but we also don't think about the tail end of what happens to it, even of what we do have to recycle. Yeah. I actually kind of, is a great lead into thinking about the portion of your piece that talks about circular circularity in packaging as a as one of the solutions that keeps things maybe out of a, a, a waste system altogether. So I think compostables is a great example. It seems like the perfect solution. It's made from plant materials. It can be returned to the earth to provide nutrients to the soil, but it's actually much more complex than that. It really depends on the infrastructure. So compostables that don't, that end up in landfills, for example, they degrade the same way that food waste does, which emits methane. It's, um, you know, a greenhouse gas that I believe it's, uh, about 28 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So it's really, really bad to keep, <laughs> to put food or compostable packaging into landfills. And I think a great example of this working would be, you know, I'm not sure any numbers on it, but for example, in Boulder here in Colorado, near where I live, they have compostable packaging everywhere. And then also these extensive, you know, diagrams and instructions on all of the public waste containers about how to dispose of it. That's, I think, an example of it working pretty well. But for these mass produced products that putting those in compostable packaging across the country, I think it, there, there are some more issues because if you don't have an option as to where to put it, it doesn't, you're kind of stacking the, the impact of that compostable container degrading in a landfill versus the impact of a plastic packaging. It's kind of like there are problems either way. So 
either we build up extensive infrastructure across the country, which we should to, you know, facilitate compostable packaging and more recyclable materials. But the best option is really no packaging at all because you don't have to build up, you don't have to, there's less sort of consumer education on what to do. You don't have to build up all these facilities that have been impacting themselves. So I think um, there, there's some great circular solutions already cropping up across the country. These uh, waste-free grocery stores, you can kind of come in with your own container and buy in bulk, uh, things like that. But I do think they, they need more scale and they need more support. I think we have the blueprint across the country. People are already doing it. The blueprints, they are, we know what to do, but it needs more support kind of upstream. What does, uh, package free or no packaging, as you described it, what does that look like um, as a, for, from a consumer standpoint? Well, I think put, put simply, it means, I guess, do you mean the day-to-day? Yeah. Yeah. I think it might be a little hard for people to imagine who are, you know, shopping the way we've normally shopped for the last 10 or 20 years. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it, it comes down to a lot of the, what we've already heard, which is, you know, bring the, bring the tote bag to the grocery store and, and try to stop using plastic bags that hold a no plastic straws campaign from, from a few years back. But I think it, it, it goes deeper than that, you know, um, looking for, it, it takes a little bit of effort, right. Which is sort of the problem because we need, we need to provide consumers with more options, but bring your own grocery bags and produce bags looking for produce that comes without packaging at all. Maybe that means shopping at your local farmer's market, which also has amazing benefits supporting local food systems, um, making choices in your day-to-day. I, I, I think a great way to start is to really, the way I see it, I, it's going to be very hard for any consumer to completely get rid of any, like all plastic production, right? It's everywhere. And there, there are many systemic changes that need to take place to reduce that. But I think if for w- what living waste-free for us right now as consumers could look like is just seeing what sorts of plastic you consume every day and where it's easiest for you to make that sort of slight habitual shift to make an impact. Because I think a huge barrier here is just that for we as humans, it's really hard to break habits. And we have all these great systems working against us throwing plastic in our face. So for me, it'd be, you know, bringing a, a coffee cup, a reusable coffee cup to the, to the coffee shop instead of, cause I'm a, you know, my, my weakness is my afternoon iced coffee every day as a pick me up. That's where I have produced a lot of waste in the past. I don't really have issues on the grocery side cause bit big into the farmer's markets, but little things like that. Um, you know, swapping out my toothbrush for something made, uh, free from plastic and you know, reusing. I, if I ever need to get takeout or I get takeout with a plastic tub, just reusing those with my leftovers every week and little shifts like that, I think can make a big difference. Cool. And you mentioned Driscoll. What other companies um, have you found are innovating in, in just getting rid of plastic entirely? Driscoll's is a, is a huge player. I also, just to say one more thing about <laughs> Driscoll's, I love what they're doing with the clamshells actually is that they are um, requiring their packaging suppliers to incorporate recycled clamshells 
back into new clamshells. So they're helping create that supply chain for the recycled product, which is actually a huge issue um, among all these companies creating all these initiatives for recycled products, but they're actually need to be the supply chain and the market for those products to even exist. But that's a, a whole different issue. I think for other companies, uh, Clover Sonoma, they they released a, a fully renewable uh, plant-based milk carton, PepsiGo and uh, Unilever, they, they've created a, a recyclable paper bottle. Danon, they're aiming to make every single piece of their packaging reusable, recyclable, or compostable by 2025. So again, I think they're there have been great strides being made in the private sector and among these larger corporations. But I do always want to emphasize that I think we just need to make sure that companies are held accountable for this and, and all other environmental initiatives and, and goals because they're lofty, which is good. We need to make sure they actually follow through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important to, you mean, you were talking a bit about the compostable issue and the sort of, we have this lesser of several evils problem. And, you know, one thing we didn't even talk about yet is the fact that not only do compostables become basically food waste in, in our landfills, but they can also contaminate recycling if they're accidentally recycled, right? I, that was new information to me. <laughs> right. Thank you. I, I appreciate you pointing that out. I forgot to mention that was huge for me as well, which is, uh, I believe just the concept of, I think, I think they refer to it as ambitious recycling or which I had done. So I was a huge culprit. Uh, I had done this so much as a consumer myself before writing the piece, which is just you put all any and all plastic into the bin no matter what, and just, you know, hope for the best. <laughs> and in reality, when you're putting non-recyclable plastic into that, the recycling bin, it, it can contaminate perfectly good recyclable uh, plastic. And so they, they actually end up having to throw out, I believe it was a fourth of all recyclable materials, even once they do reach the facilities, actually have to be thrown to landfill because they're contaminated either, you know, with a a pizza pizza box that's contaminated with food, um, a bottle that's still full of water. You know, you don't take the cap off. You people might just throw it in the bin with some soda left or something like that. So, as you mentioned, putting a compostable package into that recycling stream will actually contaminate it, and so you're you're actually sending a lot of perfectly good plastic recyclable material to landfill by contaminating the stream with a compostable container, which I think is a huge issue that's not talked about really at all. Yeah. And I think it's important to acknowledge that we're balancing two problems, right? That we're trying to solve. One is the, is the climate warming problem and one is the sort of health of our bodies and our oceans. And, and so the plastics issue is, can be part partly a climate issue, but it's also a health issue. And, you know, who might think, well, okay, maybe it's going to be methane, but at least it's not plastic. So we have to start somewhere. And I wonder if you have a thought <laughs> about that with respect to the compostables. Like I'm relieved, even though maybe that is not going to end up in a compost, I'm relieved that my takeout container is not made of plastic. Right. So how do you feel about that? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That's so true. I, I feel the same way. It's so true. I it's you're always as any food production and or just material production has an impact, right? So just a constant choosing the lesser of evils, I think. And I mean, I do think compostables are 
are better in the end, but it, it really comes down to kind of where you're living, the facilities, the resources available. And I, once again, going back to the circularity, wherever you can make the choice to use no packaging at all, I think is hands down always the best option. Um, you know, I, I used to, or sometimes when I forget a tote bag or a produce bag at the store, I'll just walk out with, you know, a couple of pieces of squash in my hands, <laughs> say, no, please, no bag. And, you know, those, those little choices, maybe taking the extra 20 minutes to eat your takeout in the restaurant, things like that. Yeah. Well, and, and can we talk a little bit more about the plastic-free movement? You mentioned those um, waste-free stores and cities around the country, including Alaska, where I live, have joined this trend. And I notice small businesses are popping up and they offer, you know, a little bit different from the health food stores that have often had bulk bins for a long time. Um, these plastic-free shops um, have ways for you can bring your own packaging or they have reusable packaging that, that you can use. Do you feel like this is a significant development or just a drop in the bucket? I definitely think it's it's significant in that, you know, it's that, it's that ultimate goal in practice, right? It's using no packaging at all, relying, usually these small little niche stores will rely more on local supply chains, which is inherently more sustainable across the board. That being said, I I, I do think the infrastructure is needed to scale it out and more consumer awareness and interest beyond white meat, white, excuse me, what might be now a niche area, which I think it is those, those smaller waste feed grocers. We have them here in Denver too. I love them. I'm a huge fan. I think it's now a little bit more niche and it can seem inaccessible. I also think they need to be more affordable because as of now, it's just such a small area of the industry that it, you know, the, the onus can't be entirely on the consumer to find and access and afford these resources. Um, so I am seeing the trends bleed more and more into the mainstream, like with the regional national grocers, I know Holt Foods, Wegmans, those still might not be the most affordable options, but I think it's just Sprouts grocers here in the West that they're also, they're providing those, those bulk options and allowing consumers to pur purchase their products in reusable containers. I think that's awesome. Farmers markets even, I think, play a huge role because, I mean, while there's still a lot of plastic waste and often in, in bringing the products to market and even serving them, that reduces the, the supply chain and it allows consumers to kind of pick their produce and vegetables outside of those, you know, plastic wrapped in plastic and plastic. And I, I think that, it's a, to go back to your questions, a significant step in that it's just spreading awareness. I think that actually might be the biggest impact is it's getting people to think about it, but I don't mm -hmm. think, um, that's a solve in itself. I think it needs to push a larger movement. Yeah. And you talked about the social justice issues with respect to recycling facilities and how they can have a detrimental impact on the areas where they are. What about the fact that, um, making these consumer choices is itself a privilege. You mentioned that just a little bit, just with the with respect to the pricing of plastic-free things. But we can't really depend on the consumer if, if uh, you know, if if the areas where people have the least means are not provided with these these opportunities for these solutions. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I, yeah, it's. I think as with a lot of great movements within the food system. For example, 
buying organic, buying all these different sorts of labels that might, you know, first of all, shut out smaller producers that can't afford certifications and labels and to get into these larger grocery stores, but it also shuts out uh, lower income consumers. I, I, I sort of see it as a similar area where oftentimes the healthiest, most sustainable choice, including package-free, plastic-free products are really mostly accessible to people with the, with the means to afford it. Um, and you know, the answer to that is just, we need, we need the systemic shifts. We need to, it's, it's great that consumers that have the means to make these choices are doing it because it's showing companies, you know, within governments, government regulators, the decision makers and stakeholders that eaters want this change, which can help really turn the, turn the tide. Consumer demand is huge, but we need that sort of um, top-down approach as well as bottom-up to help reduce the cost for those that might not be able to afford it. I mean, it, it goes back to, uh, I, I believe it was um, Aaron at Brassroots, who I interviewed for the piece, who's talking about how they would love to be in compostable packaging, but you know, for, for a lot of small companies, it's just, it's simply not affordable. It's inaccessible. So they, it, the onus also can't be on these small companies to, to make the right choice. And he's to, he's seen in, in recent years, it has become more affordable, which is a huge win because there are more and more innovators and, and companies doing this offering solutions. So now he's able to access it. I think it's a similar story with these consumers and, you know, reaching these eaters that in lower income communities, I think it kind of trickles down, but the more we talk about it, the more it's scaled out at a wider level, it becomes more accessible. I'm glad you brought up farmer's markets because they seem like a nice nexus for avoiding packaging and also some food equity since often SNAP benefits, for instance, are available at farmer's markets. And hopefully we can encourage people of all income levels to, to show up there. Have you noticed ways that small agriculture uh, companies, the, the the farms that might be coming to farmers markets, the way they're embracing using less packaging in their production? That's a great question. I and I actually, it's a part of the the piece that I would. As I think, I'll, I'll keep saying that. I wish I wish I could have gone in many more directions for this because um, it's such a complex issue. But I do wish I could uh, could have dug in more into the issue as it relates to farmers. And I think it, it kind of relates back to your last question where farmers are running on razor thin margins, right? They, it's, there needs to be a return on investment in order for them to make changes to their production. Even if, even if they want to, you know, it comes, it's the same case for using more sustainable practices, more, I run into this a lot when speaking with farmers about uh, regenerative agriculture and things of that nature. So I think when it comes to this issue, as it relates to farmers, I am, I am excited by a lot of solutions I see from startups and innovators providing, um, the technology for, for farmers to maybe extend the shelf life of produce. For example, appeal sciences, I know makes, um, these like plant-based coatings that growers can use to keep their produce fresh two to three times longer. I think the USDA also created a coating using a blend of uh, vitamins and salts and minerals to extend the shelf life of sliced fruits. Um, I, I believe up to like a month longer or something, some crazy number like that. So 
I am excited by, you know, the tide is turning within private industry. And I think that can provide solutions to farmers to help them make better choices, but it's very hard to, to ask a, a grower or a producer to swap, you know, wherever they're using plastics to swap it out because I guarantee it's the most affordable option and they don't really have a choice. Mm-hmm. Are there things that you find personally challenging when it comes to reducing your own plastic use? For me, it's got to be dental floss. I know it's a tiny thing, but it kind of irks me that I can't find a, an effective plastic-free dental floss. <laughs> Absolutely, dental floss. I I have personally thought about that a lot too. And and I believe it, it was, I, I can't recall who I was speaking to. I was mentioned in one of the interviews I made for this piece because, you know, that expert also had no idea how to swap out dental floss. So it's not just you, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think for people working in the food system and, uh, you know, aware of these issues, it can be frustrating at, anywhere within your day-to-day life because plastic's everywhere. For me, most frustrating are sort of like the big life events or, you know, I, within COVID I've had to move, I've had three different apartments just since 2020. So I've had to move a few times. Um, and (laughs) it's a stressful experience, but for me by far, the most stressful part is avoiding waste. You you can't get around it. Like it's, whether it's a, a moving company that's, you know, just wrapping everything up in those, in those, uh, plastic wrappings and stuff to protect your furniture or, you're just down to the wire and you have to get all of your stuff out of the place. So you just end up, you know, you, you don't have time to go to the compost, the recycling facility, the donation bin. So that that's been tough for me. I also, I, I rode in the uh, five borough back tour in New York city right around when I was uh, writing this piece. And so I was very aware of, they have all those little snack stations throughout and, you know, they give away all this free food and the whole time, all I could think about was the amount of plastic, you know, they, I can't remember what it was, but they'd wrap up a piece of produce and plastic individually wrapped and you had food, they'd hand out bagels. People would take a bite and just throw it out. And it's so frustrating to me, but I also, I think that's, you know, there's always the flip side where that's also a, a hopeful spot because just imagine the impact of, if those huge events like that bike tour with, I can't remember, you know, tens of thousands of participants, if they were to go plastic waste free and, you know, give the example to consumers and also just the sheer amount of, uh, waste they could divert. That's very exciting too. But yeah, I can, can, it's frustrating to, (laughs) in my everyday life. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what is the biggest environmental bang for your buck for a consumer? If they were listening to the show and maybe feeling slightly overwhelmed and they thought, okay, well, I can handle making one change to start using less plastic. Do you have a recommendation for a first step? Yeah, I the the journalist to me sort of wants to take like a true cost accounting approach to this and break down the the climate impact of every single <laughs> every single item possible, but I actually think uh this will be different sort of for for each consumer. Um like like I mentioned before, I think a huge barrier is just changing habits, simply changing a simple everyday habit that you're so used to and is so ingrained in the system. Um, it's, there are large systems in place that make it very easy to have a very large carbon footprint. So I'd say, you know, look at your daily habits, figure out where you're consuming the largest amounts of plastic and 
it's sort of like building up an exercise routine or something, you know, make small, small changes, uh, build a very small daily habit that grows from there. So, you know, for ever looking at just food, um, since that's where the piece was focused, I simply bringing your own bag. Um, one of the first things I did to, you know, I started thinking about reducing plastic waste was I bought two little, uh, produce bags from the New York city green market back when I lived there. I think I probably bought it back in 2016 for $5 each. I still use those bags. I take them everywhere and just wash them. And so that's just a habit for me. I, and like I said, I'll go to the grocery now. If I forget it, I'll just carry it out with my hands and it's just such a part of my life. So those little tweaks, you know, um, let me see. I bringing tote bags, buying local, uh, there are a lot more packages options. Like we, we did already mentioned with the farmer's markets significantly reduces not only that plastic package that it comes in, but also the number of miles that the food has traveled and the facilities has had to pass through to get to your hands. So it's that reduces the climate impact hugely, even beyond plastic. And yeah, I think I also, I, I would want to mention that one of the most important things you can do is support those with your purchases and with your voice, the companies that are really, you know, pushing for, for the change and and following through with their initiatives to incentivize that plastic free living and then calling out the greenwashing because, you know, we, we need to be closely examining the corporations, governments, just across the board, those that are claiming to make the big changes because they know it's what consumers want. They, we need to keep an eye on them and to make sure that they're following through. Yeah, absolutely. Do you happen to know what the health impact of plastic in a landfill is? I mean, obviously we know that plastic, when it ends up in the oceans can be really detrimental or when it ends up in the environment and starts to degrade, but landfills are more contained spaces. Do, is there science about how that is leaching into our food or water systems? I mean, you touched on it briefly going to the oceans. I actually think I should preface this by saying I didn't go too deeply on this in the piece, but plastic in a landfill kind of disintegrates down into those little microplastics, right? Which go into the soil and leach down into the waterways and into the ocean. But I think we are just starting to see the impact that's having on human health. I mean, I think I mentioned at, at the beginning that it was estimated by WWF that the average eater ingests one credit card every week, which is just crazy to think about. And I think I, I found another report saying that plastic was found. I mean, you know, I would want to look more closely at the study. I think it was a smaller study, but there were microplastic was found in the blood of, I think, 75% of the study participants, if I'm getting it correctly. So it's, it's in our blood, you know, it's in mm-hmm. our drinking water, our soil, our blood. It's basically everywhere because it's breaking down into these smaller and smaller particles that really it gets harder and harder to contain. (laughs) Not the most hopeful response, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, I guess I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, have they been studying the differences between landfill plastics and the plastics that just end up in our environment because they didn't even make it to the landfill, like the things that are washing out of our clothes and the things that are just you know, discarded end up in oceans, but yeah, but maybe that's not been studied too much yet. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I think we're just starting to see the impact. So expect mm-hmm. more of those headlines. 
So I guess one place that we might be able to finish up is just to pose the question that you asked as the title of the piece, which is, is plastic waste the cost of eating? What do you think about that, Emily? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think that there, there are definitely solutions out there for all of these issues, but in our current system of food production, plastic has become a part of our nature and that's what needs to change. So I think it's definitely possible to revolutionize this industry, but it really comes down to, as I mentioned, we talked about the bottom-up solutions from the eaters and the small companies. We also need the top-down put pressure on corporations to provide you know, waste-free options. The legislation, there's the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act that was introduced in the U.S. Senate this year. And that aims to make requirements and incentives to reduce the production of these materials and boost these efforts to recycle and compost. But we need more of those to build a more circular system, as we mentioned. We need more of those options to help empower eaters to go completely package-free. I really loved the quote from Freedom Gupta Fauner at the end of the piece, which said, reuse is compassion. And, you know, that sounds, if you, without the context, it sounds kind of a little bit fluffy and, <laughs> and ridiculous, but it's, it's so true. I, that's what inspires me. If more people think about all of the resources, the habitats, the natural elements going into these products, as well as the labor expended on creating it, shipping it across the world until it reaches your hands, no matter what it is, plastic or food, not to mention, like, if you think about how many hands have to touch each piece of food that is on your plate, it really does build that compassion. It makes you more thoughtful in your choices. And I think more storytelling such as this and, and more education to consumers can really make an impact. I do believe that. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Emily. It was so nice to speak with you. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local Edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com. 